outside of being born to Lois May Branch and Albert Hatcher, Morehouse College was the single-handed most important thing to happen in my life. Welcome to You Better, a show about personal discovery and love. I'm your host, Keisha Garrison, and I'm on that journey of knowing and loving who I really am every day, just like you. I want you to come face to face with yourself and be proud of what you see. My friend, it's time to do better. It's time to you better. Now let's get to it. Hello, hello. As always, thank you so much for being here with me for another episode of the show. At this point, this work of exploring and learning from the lives of others has already changed me for the better. And I certainly hope that as we continue to unpack life lessons from across our human family, you are picking up gems you can apply in your life as well. Today's episode features another one of my closest friends and confidants, Mark Hatcher. Mark actually went to grad school with my ex-husband, but I didn't meet him until we moved to Seattle from the East Coast in 2013. I remember that we had come out here and my ex didn't reach out to Mark. And Mark was like, I know homie did not come out here and not make contact. So he made a point to reach out and connect, not just with my partner, but also with me, this person he had never met. But he wanted to make sure he was like, yo, you're coming out here and you're going to need community. And I am here. Let's do this. And from that day forward, Mark and I have built such a beautiful friendship. And it's one that I really cherish. You know that DJ Khaled song about no new friends? Sir, I have to deeply disagree. Mark is a friend who has become my brother. I can't imagine what Seattle would have been like for me had he and his wife, Nolana, not made me and my daughter their family. So yes to the new friends. Now, as we dig into Mark's life story, you will learn about so many of the teachings that his mother shared with him. And it was my absolute honor to document her teachings and play one small part in preserving her story and her legacy. It was also moving for me to hear the story of a black man whose model of manhood is based on care, concern, service-based leadership, and honoring black femininity. There are also important lessons here about being open to growth and new ideas and not obsessing over perfection. So with that, let's hear from one of Detroit's finest, Mark Hatcher. Let me just say thank you. Thank you so much for being here with me and being willing to share. I have a lot of biological brothers, but something <laughs> must have gone right in my life that the universe said, no, I, I got another one for you. I'm going to send you another brother. <laughs> hey, it's all good. You know, the feeling is mutual. And every chance I get to break bread fellowship with you, you know, I always take it. So thank you for allowing yeah. me this opportunity to just share with you and share with your listeners. Yes. So, Mark, for those who are not yet blessed to know who you are, can you share with everybody, who are you today? Today, it's interesting you put that today on it. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. today I am, I would say, a man of the universe, a man of godliness, a husband, a father, and a person who is just cons overly consumed, probably in many instances, with making a difference. I mean, that's how I show up and that's what I bring to the table every time. My objective is when I walk into the room to make a difference. And it's mostly going to be a positive difference, but sometimes it's just to be a rabble rouser and to start some discussion that did not precede me. 
And so that's how I show up and that's who I am today. And I like to think that that's how that's who I've been all along. But I think um, with every step along the way, there's been some some growth and some development, which would, which has enabled me to read the room a little bit better and decide how I'm going to make a difference and what I'm going to call to the attention of those in the room. I love that. A rabble rouser. <laughs> I like to think I'm with my people right now. I consider myself a rabble rouser, too. <laughs> And I, I say that today because I do believe that we meet ourselves in different, just different versions of ourselves as we age, as we grow. I'm curious what you think the young you from perhaps middle school, high school, wherever, what do you think that young you would, would think of that description and how you talk about yourself today? Well, that's interesting. Um, the young me, um, when I think of the young me, because I am the fifth of six um, overall children to Lois, Lois May Isom who changed her name when I was about uh, about 12 years old from Lois to Beautiful. So she was the first person in Michigan whose name went from a noun to an adjective that became her name. Wow. But I was the fifth of six, and I'm, but I'm my dad's oldest child. So my mom and dad were, were never married. To, so to some outside of the spectrum of the black community may consider me a bastard child, but I was far from it. You know, mm. it's far from it. But um, I, I benefited greatly. The early me benefited greatly from uh, my older brothers and sisters. I have three older sisters, one that is 15 years older, one that is 14 years older, and then one that is nine years older. So really, I had three additional mothers. And then I had a brother who was eight years older than me, who's deceased now. And then it was me. Then I have a brother's 18 months, my junior. And so in learning how to function in that environment, it taught me a whole lot. It taught me a lot about hierarchy. It taught me a lot about responsibility. And it taught me a lot about um, the territorial streets of Detroit, which my mm -hmm. mom um, absolutely refused to lose us to. And so probably the, the parenting tactics that you and I use today would probably be considered child's play to... <laughs> <laughs> to, to you know some of the things that that went on but but Keisha I bet you if I dig deeper into your background there's some glaring similarities because my mom is from my mom is a, a was born and raised in Jim Crow Louisiana so oh. my family is all from from New Orleans and my mom had you know six siblings and you know a whole bunch of stuff that came along with it but um the, the old me was really just trying to find my space i felt like that i had the intellectual prowess because of my brothers and sisters to fit in anywhere except amongst them because i was just a little mm. brother you know so they yeah. they but they gave me a voice but they selectively chose when i could apply it and so that's why i had to be almost calculated about how i could make a difference when i could make a difference and what that difference meant and i was fortunate enough to Grew up in Detroit on the, probably I would say the second phase of, of separate but equal. And I don't want to go down a, a history story here, but I think it was just before separate but equal kind of broke up. Because I think separate but equal myself was was um, was the right thing to do. But we should just make equal be equal, right? Because mm -hmm. be, before, before desegregation, right, right, there were black hospitals, black communities, black haberdashery shops, black barbers you know, black pharmacies. And Detroit was the epitome of that because of the industrial revolution and the car industry. So I got a chance to see all that. The biggest disenfranchiser of all that was the mall because the mall led black people in the communities to think that the white man's water was colder. 
and that they can go out Hello. to these big, flashy, glamorous stores and get things that they couldn't get in their own community. Well, that was not true. All it did is disenfranchise the community and took dollars outside the community that were normally inside the community and allowed those areas to flourish while our areas uh, died. And so I saw that firsthand. I understood it very much so because my mother, who was only high school educated, was very busy explaining those things to me at an early age. So it was your mother who was mm-hmm. putting you on game. My mother and um, and I was able to recall those lessons more in my journey through Morehouse College. I remember, you know, when I was like eight years old, my mom asking me, did I ever think I'd go to college one day? And I said, yes. And she said, where will you go to school? And I said, I want to go to the University of Michigan because they got the best football helmets. They got the greatest football helmets. They're blue with the gold. They're just like the <laughs> high school colors. And, you know, this will sound crazy in today's world, but my mom said, you little ignorant SOB or something of the sort. And she said, <laughs> you need to be going where to school where Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson. And she was like, that's like Howard University or that's Morehouse. And she called it University, Morehouse University or somewhere like that, where you can learn more about yourself and you can learn more about people who look like you. And wow. and at that time, my feelings were hurt. I just said I want to go to I just said I want to go to University of Michigan. I don't understand. I don't understand. That's why are we getting all this heat? Where's all this heat, Ma? And, and besides, those schools probably don't even have football teams. Know what you're talking about. Well, you know? Right. <laughs> so wow. yeah. So that's that's the elementary mark. But I was um I was fortunate enough to be raised in a community where everybody knew each other, where all everyone from my oldest sister all the way to the youngest grandchild had the same kindergarten teacher, believe it or not. Wow. That's like over that's like over forty seven years of, of teaching. And so in that in that grade school throughout the throughout the community, we we were all known, and so we we were reared by the community, by the school, and and it helped us to develop. You know, back in that day, I think I benefited mightily too from the structure of our schools. And back in those days, since school funding was was another thing that was almost racially based before the busing uh, of 1973. In 1973, before they bust, I was in what was called a split section because the classrooms, I think they had to have at least 30 students in the class, but after an overflow, they would split the classes up and teach, you know, two classes together. So like maybe a third grade and a fourth grade class and mixed curriculums. Well, in my second grade class, I was fortunate enough to be in a split section, which was a second and a third grade class. Well, since I had learned so much from my brothers and sisters who were all in high school and things at the time, I was able to complete both curriculums in the same year. So I skipped the third grade. I went from second right to the fourth grade. And okay. and that obviously gave me a, a, a little bit of a, a glimpse into what I could accomplish if I was pressed. And... Um, yeah. It was it was it was great for me because so that next semester I went to a bus to an all white school and that was a, a part of another understanding because Detroit's an all black city and we went months yeah. and weeks without seeing white people. It was interesting because it was new for all of us, right? Because um, supposedly that was the answer to the imbalance in educational funding. So it was a way to mix the funding so you could say, you you blacks really can't complain about that when really all they did is mix the underserved black community and the impoverished white communities, but they didn't do that on the fringes where where the riches were. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It was unique for me because I had that confidence that I just spoke of. And I remember being the absolute number one first person off the bus when schools was integrated. Wow. I'm curious then about your mother's 
<laughs> not so gentle advice <laughs> about what you needed to do to go make sure you could, you know, see yourself in the in the community around you in college, go find yourself, however it was that she put it, where you need to be going to a place like this so you can know who you are. Mm-hmm. Now, in hindsight, because you ended up going to, to Morehouse, mm-hmm. you didn't go where the where the helmets were, where the right colors, <laughs> the cute colors, uh, you made a different choice. Looking yeah. back on this decision, going to this all black male college, tell us about what you discovered when you did go to Morehouse. Well, let me let me take you to, uh, to how I got there. Though I think that's probably a yes. a better story before we get into that. Um, but the, the first thing is that so I was the I was the president of my I was a, a um, vice president of my sophomore class, and at my high school. When you when you were a sophomore class, part of the officer's responsibilities when you're in school is to proxy the standardized tests that are being administered at your school. And so in my sophomore year, for the last section of the SAT exam, it was either SAT or the ACT. I don't remember which one it was, but there wasn't enough students to sit there. And so the class advisor, which was a teacher at that time, said, well, Mark, do you want to sit for the exam? And I was like. Sure. And so I took the it was the it was the ACT because I got a 31 out of I think a 36. And you better remember your ACT yeah, score. I, right? Let me tell you how I remember. Let me tell you how I remember <laughs> it. Because at that time I didn't even have any schools that I could think of to put down other than University of Michigan, University of Detroit. But I remember the conversation with my mom, so I put down Morehouse College. And when I put down Morehouse College, I sent my information off to him, right? And Morehouse had an early admissions program. And Morehouse accepted me as a sophomore into the early admissions program. But we didn't have the resource to be able to afford it. But so I knew I was going to Morehouse almost two years before I graduated. Just by that. And it was a mistake, really. I think it was a mistake from them because you're supposed to have your junior years, what I learned later, your junior year scores in order for you to be accepted. But they accepted me early. And I saw when other people who I played sports with and other things like that were trying to decide where they were going to school, I already knew where I was going. It was really because of the seed my mama planted very, very early in life. Sometimes our parents can make some suggestions to us. Mm. And you already had a feeling about what you wanted to do. What allowed you to be open to what it was she was talking about? Because sometimes that comes up against who we already are trying to be. To be, if I'm being completely honest when I think about it, I don't think I had a choice. Like, when, when, <laughs> listen, when Lois May or Caldonia May, which is my grandmother or my paternal, my mother, maternal grandmother when they said something that was what was gonna happen okay mm. and their strong willedness and all the stuff that go along with them you know may kept all of us out of jail kept all of us you know off the streets and that was um that was a great thing uh, so i don't know that i ever thought twice once my mom told me that that that's what i should be considering you know whereas I went to a predominantly, you know, hot basketball school, a lot of professional professional basketball players, a lot of athletes. And um, during that time, when they were coming talking to those guys, I weren't even talking to anybody because I had already been accepted Morehouse as a sophomore, and I knew that's where I was going. Wow. And without the, the resources that it takes to 
Yeah, I mean, and and you know, not to not to put things on blast, but I remember my freshman year at Morehouse, and this was the mid '80s, right? So my freshman year at Morehouse, when we had to um, bring in our financial aid papers, I remember our adjusted household income for the 1984-85 year was seventeen thousand two hundred and sixty dollars. And that's the truth, right? And Morehouse cost about eight thousand dollars to go to school there then. So needless to say, it was going to be an all-aid-based education yeah. for, that, for that private, all-black, all-male college. Look, <laughs> I, you're talking to your Spelman sister here who hears you loud and clear. Who I know what the block of government cheese looks and tastes uh, like. It's great. It's great. And <laughs> it is really great cheese, to be honest. And if I hadn't gotten a full scholarship to go to Spelman, I wonder what my life would be because I I got a lot out of that experience. But when, when I saw what it costs, whew, I was like, I don't, first I got a tuition scholarship and even just a tuition scholarship, my family was like, well, well blessings to you. You, st- you can't go over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, what about the room to board the books? Yep. It was really, this a, it's a big bill. And so I'm, I'm grateful that yep. both of us found a way. Well, my, my way was not only like through Pell Grants and things like that, because I think the max Pell Grant at that time was $2,300 a year. So that still left me in arrears about $6,000. So through work study was probably another 1500 to $2,000. And then after I was, it was winging it. But in my sophomore year, at the end of my sophomore year, I was fortunate enough to get a job with the city of Atlanta that paid about $16,000 a year. So I was able to pay for school and I was able to live in welfare section 8 housing which I grew up in anyway. So that was, that was, mm-hmm. that was no joke. You know, some, Straight. It was great. So talking about being on a housing plan from the social service and talking about being on a, a food stamp plan, that was a badge of honor. Let me tell you, mm-hmm. that was a badge of honor. It was paying, um, paying $48 a month for my rent as in a studio apartment in the Bedford Pines, uh, apartments down on uh Boulevard and, uh, in, in downtown Atlanta Boulevard and Ralph McGill. Loved it. Loved it. Wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I want to know about Mark on campus. <laughs> um, on campus initially, I, I'll tell you, because it, it came full circle. When I got to Morehouse, I remember um, my dad and I, we left on a Thursday. It was like August the 13th, and we drove down to Atlanta. And my dad was giving me the talk all the way there about you know, this is where you become a man and this is blah, 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 blah. And, you know, my dad never was, uh, um, my dad never cohabitated with us, but my dad was always around. And he was like, my dad did parent-teacher conferences. My dad did all the sporting events. My mom didn't do that stuff. For all the stuff that she did before, my dad came to all our, our games and all our stuff like that. My dad did all the parent-teacher conferences and stuff like that. But I remember it was just, it was just this unusual rhetoric from him about, you got to be a man and all this kind of stuff, you know, you got down here. And so my dad, in essence, dropped me off and went on to do what he had some other stuff going on, but went on and, and, you know, and so he dropped me off. And I remember like, you know, getting sitting in front of Graves Hall because the campus wasn't open yet for underclassmen. 
It was going to open on Sunday, but I met some upperclassmen who said, who were RAs and they were preparing the room. So they said, I could stay in one of the dorms room. But I remember standing in front of Graves Hall. And if you know Morehouse's campus, you kind of know that's like the centerpiece of the campus. And I remember walking down, down by Harkness Hall, walking around where Spelman's uh, front gate was, and then walking back up to the parking lot and then back up the main drive of Morehouse and being back in front of Graves Hall. And I was saying, is this all there is to it? <laughs> you know, just, I mean, I was like, I mean, this can't be where she sent me to see the wizard because the wizard can't be here. I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I mean, that little statue over there with that brown man point is cool, but, but I mean, listen, it's, it's small. What do we? And, and, I just, and, I walked it already. And, and listen, I had only been on two campuses in my life: University of Michigan and uh, at Eastern Michigan. And, but as you can might imagine, state-funded institutions were a lot different. Yeah. Were a lot different. So the visual did not match. And I tell you, I was disappointed. I mm. sat in the middle of that campus thinking, what have I done? What have I done? I don't know mm. what I'm... And then combine that with the fact that this is not a cell phone era. My dad, who brought me down here, I have no earthly idea where the freak he is. Wow. And it's just me. So it's a 17-year-old kid from Detroit who's here. And I'm thinking, okay, so I'm from Detroit, and what's going to happen is if these smart mouth country bumpkins say something to me, I'm going to be the first to bop somebody in their mouth. I'm going to be the first, to, you know. So, you know, the, the, the territorial crap from Detroit starts to kick in, right? But I met these two, two guys from Florida who were, who were RAs, and they just took me in. And I remember, you know, that was probably – you know, the first time I've been, you know, drunk beyond beyond recognition, you know, the first time I, you know, hung out all night, you know, all those sorts of things happened within the week, like leading up to freshman week, because freshman week was until the following week. And so just learning about that stuff, while I still didn't even have a room because part of paperwork that I was supposed to have from FAFSA wasn't in, it was three of the four pages. I don't know where the fourth page went, but three of the four pages were there. So I couldn't even get housing. So if it wouldn't have been that wow. the young men who I met there, who's the RAs, blessed me until the upper man, upperclassmen came, I would have been out of pocket and, and still searching for my, my dad, bless his heart. Mm, now, what do you think inspired those two RAs to take you in? The same love that you hear me speak of about Morehouse, just saying this young man is here from Detroit. He don't have a chance. He doesn't know. And we're just going to take him in and, and show him the way like like the way that upperclassmen are called upon to do at Morehouse anyway. So by the time, you know, Spirit Week and all the stuff that's affiliated with that came around and the rites of passage, I was fully indoctrinated, and fully understanding of of kind of what was going on. And it was, it was, I had been through kind of a rite of passage in my own household before getting there. And so this one was, was unique in that it was black men and black men who I never met before, but it also helped me dispel some of the stereotypes I had in my head from ignorance around what, you know, what, what Southern gentlemen were, what people in the South were and, you know, those things. So it was a learning process as well for me. But um, I, I will say outside of being born to Lois May Branch and Albert Hatcher, Morehouse College was the single-handed, most important thing to happen in my life. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm, It's very true. One of the things that God said to you was Morehouse is one of the places where you're going to learn to be a man. The whole learning to be a man thing is, would you say that was one of the things that you got or what did you learn about being a man Mm -hmm. in Morehouse? Well, yeah, that was that was definitely it. But 
I want to couch that by saying that part of it was evolution, part of it was Morehouse, and part of it was chance. Okay, and let me say the evolution is like if you're going to keep living, you're going to learn some some things that are going to take you from adolescence to decision making, and typically those things are akin to being being called a man, if you will. But the fortitude to actually deliver on those promises came from my interaction with other individuals who weren't who looked like me, but weren't like me outside of, you know, who who were more like me internally than they were externally is what I'm trying to say. And so we were able to understand the common good. And Morehouse has this patient, time-honored tradition in which they hold this, she holds this, and I, I don't want to be cliche, but at Morehouse is referred to as a crown over your head that it dares you to grow tall enough to wear. And when you grow tall enough to wear, you become a, 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 a beacon of hope, a beacon of progression, a beacon of understanding for your community. You become a beacon of challenging for the masses. And all of those things, I feel like through evolution, through chance, but most importantly, the way the center through Morehouse College came, that that's how I became a man. My Lois May birthed me, Morehouse College crowned me. That's a powerful image to grow tall enough to wear the crown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I cannot think of any situation, any relationship, any um, scenario, any life lesson that I bring that I share that is not rooted some way in either Morehouse College or the direct teachings of Lois May. Mm, mm, mm. It's great to know that. It's great to know that. Even that first story about, you know, taking off some of the layers of assumptions and ignorance is being able to step into this new world. It, it seems like it started from day one. Well, it, and it did, Keisha, honestly, literally from day one. Um, I was a preemie. I was born six months and two days. And I was born wow. and I had a hooping cough and they didn't think I was going to make it. And so my mom brought me home. And I remember my sisters telling me this story over and over again that she built a tent out of a pillowcase and Vicks Vapor Rub. She rubbed it all over the all over the pillowcase and she put like a nightlight, like one of those big old industrial nightlights over it. And what she did is put me in the drawer and put stretched a pillowcase on top of it. And that was the way she broke my cold. Because I had to breathe through the, the Vicks that was on the pillowcase and the heat from the light, and it helped to open up my lungs. But they didn't think I was going to make it. Um, so my mom said, I made it because I was supposed to be here. She used to say that to me all the time. You made it because you're supposed to be here. And she said, you're supposed to, you're supposed to do great things. You're supposed to dine with kings. She used to say that all the time. Your mother spoke a life over you. Yes, she did. Wow. <laughs> yes, she did. That seems like a very affirming moment in your life. I, how old were you when that started to really affect how you moved, when you became really aware of what she was saying to you? It's probably junior, sophomore in high school, sophomore, junior year around that time. Because I remember when I was um, getting ready to um, run for sophomore class vice president. And I remember my mom told me that 
in order to be successful, what I need to do is really have a, a plan. But she called it a prospectus at that time. And she said, you need to have a prospectus of what you're going to do. You need to be able to go up and say it and share it. And then you need to be able to live through it, she said, because that's what people of pride do. And she said, you know, she said, if you don't believe me, read read some of the works of Coleman Young. And Coleman Young is Coleman A. Young um, is the uh, is the uh, first black mayor of Detroit. And very, very popular, very well known in the community and was known to come around. And actually, in high school from an essay contest in my junior year, I won the right to be mayor mayor for a day. And so I met with, okay. with, with Coleman Young and that allowed me to get a city job after my senior year of high school so I can have some money for college and things like that. So really cool. You know what? That doesn't surprise me at all. When I first got to start knowing you, I called you the mayor. <laughs> that was that was my internal nickname for you. I was like, we got to talk to Mark the mayor. Like that, that was just you carry yourself like a a man who has a charge to care for a community. Thank you. And to hear that you had a taste of mayordom. Yes, I did. Yes, I helps did. Helps me paint some more of the Mark picture. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Anissa. It's an honorable thing. You know, I, I don't know that I've always worn that with, with courage or pride, but it's something that I've always, I've always ended up in that space. And I think it wasn't until I was in, um, I was in a counseling session. I don't want to steer off track here, but I was in a counseling session with my own personal counselor, maybe about three years ago now. And I, and I think um, I, w- I was asking people for some feedback. Well, it was something that I had written, but I asked people for feedback on it. And the comments and the responses like you just shared were so overwhelming that I almost felt undeserving of it. And I, and I shared it with my counselor he was like, so you asked for feedback and people said you were stately, you were forward thinking, you were, you had a high executive present, you showed up very well, you were kind, you were a leader, you were all these things and you were, you were embarrassed by it. And I said, well, yeah, I don't know that I feel like that I can always live up to it. He said, do you feel like you ever live up to it? I said, oh yeah, most of the time. He said, well, it just accept it and be. He said, you know, we have to allow ourselves to lean into the greatness that we've actually earned. And I remember my mom saying things like that. And so that, that helped me to defeat some of the negative self-talk I had about not belonging, not being fit to be amongst the company that I keep. It's reminding me of something that um, a young woman, Nikki Gain, who runs the organization Dignity for Divas, she had said to me, um, we're like ingredients inside of a, we're inside of a container. We're in the bottle. We can't read what it says on the label. Uh-huh. And so sometimes people, you, you're, you're experiencing it. You're living as you. And the people who are outside of the container that is you are able to read the ingredients mm-hmm. list. And they see the stuff that sometimes it's a little hard for you to see. And so people are telling you about the ingredients that they're seeing on the bar, on the mark bottle. I can I can understand how it might be a little bit like, wow, I, I, that's not what I was seeing myself as. I'm just in here being the ingredients in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And I was reading them and I was floored because I think it was like over 400 comments and they were all like of the same kind of thread. And I was like, Well, damn, I guess I am making a difference, you know? 
All right, it's time for a quick break because I need to talk to the people who might want to book me. So listen, if you are in the position of curating powerful learning experiences and you like what you're learning here on You Better, let's take this thing to the next level. Email me today to book me for your next event or broadcast where personal growth or activating care for different communities and cultures are on the agenda. I am ready to moderate meaningful conversations, deliver insightful interviews, lead learning circles, or to speak about how we can be better to ourselves and others. Tap into my enthusiasm for encouraging us to love and celebrate the richness of our varied experiences. Email me today at info at keishagarrison.co. And don't get it mixed up. That's an I before E in that Keisha, and that is .co at the end. Info at KeishaGarrison.co. I'll be looking out for your message. Now let's get back to the show. So I have to talk to you about fatherhood. I loved learning about some of the things, the ways that you've been parented, because to watch you parent is to watch a very, very intentional and conscious man in action. (laughs) And when you were describing who you are today, obviously, father was one of the identifiers. Mm -hmm. What do you think about parenting and how did you get here? You know, and this probably won't come as a surprise to you, it's hard to talk about my love for my daughter without being overcome with emotion. Yeah. Every single time. Um, I love my wife. I love my wife. And I know about how scripture talks about, you know, loving your wife and, you know, loving your spouse. And it should be, you know, primary over loving your daughter. And, and I'll accept that. I will. But let me tell you. That little one, that little one, Maris Mays Hatcher, Maris Mays Newton Hatcher, did not ask to be here. Did not ask to be here. And since she didn't ask to be here, it's important that I make her um, the primary focal point of understanding why she is here. And I will do that without my lovely wife, Nolana Newton Hatcher, or with my wife, but it is it is my job to unequivocally advocate for my daughter, and I and I and I will not take a backseat or ever be apologetic for that. Um, my love as a father for that little girl um, supersedes probably the love I have for anything else in this world, and it's important for me to show up for her. It is important for me to extol virtue to her. It is important for me to employ consequences for actions that are going to be to her detriment. That is how I advocate for her, even when she is uncertain about what is going on. You know, um, it is pro- it is partially behind um, my discovery of a mantra that came up about six years ago. And I developed it myself just through trial and error. But my biggest mantra in life is presence over perfection and it just means Mm -hmm. that you don't have to be perfect but you have to be present and so I'm when I'm with my daughter I try to be present and on point all the time and I try to be present on point so that I can make sure she gets the best of me so that I can make sure that she doesn't have um for lack of a better term daddy issues and you Mm -hmm. know people because of because of my daughter and I think everybody thinks their daughter is the cutest little thing since ever and all that kind of stuff but Um, And obviously I do too, but I think what's more important for me is giving my daughter 
a, a sense of value as it pertains to the sense of discernment. I want my daughter to have the gift of discernment. And by that, I mean, like when people say to me things like, I know you're going to have a shotgun because your daughter's a pretty little cute one and blah, blah, blah. Nah, I'm not having a shotgun. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach my daughter, um, and I'll continue to do so every day, that it's her choice and she has choices. And her choice, um, her main choice is just being able to discern what she wants and what she doesn't want. So when my daughter is at an age where she's ready to choose a mate, choose a first suitor i want her to say hey little ricky guess what i choose you come on back here let me show you something all right i mean because yes. i want her to be empowered to the in that way and that's important because um i think when making life's decisions we have to be absolutely right or absolutely wrong but we have to be absolute and i want maris to know that i'm always absolutely her dad and she can come to me with anything. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to support anything, but it means that I will be able to find the virtue in it and help her to understand, you know, the way that we can pivot and make good out of it. When you mention presence over perfection, mm-hmm. is perfection something that you struggled with in the past or what brought you to the place where you needed a mantra in mind to remind yourself mm-hmm. to put presence over perfection? Um, well, because, because I think that, we're all, I won't say we're all, but I have been so overexposed to the term like practice makes perfect and, you know, you need mm-hmm. to have everything perfect and things need to be perfect and right on point. When I'm not sure perfect really even exists because there's always some way you can improve. But if you show right. up in earnest about how you show up, the work you put in to get there, then you can get a better outcome than probably what you ever imagined. And so my presence is just being there and open to the responsibility, to the process, to the possibilities and to the likelihood that there'll be some other ways that I would do things over in the event that I had another chance. And so if I'm going to sit around and, and think about and pontificate and, 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 and overanalyze situations, then that means I'm probably not present in the situation. So when I get in mm-hmm. a situation, I just want to be in it. And it won't always be perfect. It won't always work out right. But people will say that I was there. And that's one of the most rewarding things that people have said to me to this point is that I was there for them or I showed up for them or I was present for them. And and that's and that's super duper important for me. It really is. And little Maris, what a gift that she has that her father is choosing presence over perfection. Parenting is humbling. Whew, I have learned so much about myself because of parenting mm-hmm. and yeah. focusing on being, I've chosen intentional as one of my parenting mantras, but I would say that presence in, in forgiving myself for all the things that I'm not getting so-called right. Mm-hmm. It saves me every, on a weekly basis, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe a daily basis, but I think that it's a blessing to her that you've, chosen that mantra for fatherhood mm-hmm. well you know Keisha, i'll tell you uh both husbanding and fathering if you will i mean i think in both instances they are the most humbling and the most rewarding thing at the exact same time <laughs> the exact same. i mean i tell you sometimes my wife and i will go back and forth about an issue and even in the issue if i am deferring it is so rewarding to come together with someone who you can agree to like, okay, for us going forward, it might not be the best thing for either one of us independently, but collectively it's the best thing for us. So you kind of say, 
well, my idea was the best idea, but you're like, but I got this one with me. So mm. it's all right. Mm-hmm. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Right. And that's how we, we have a, we, we talk about even fighting fair. Like, okay, look, okay. This kind of going somewhere kind of crazy. Okay. So we might need to like call a 20, 20 second time out mm-hmm. and, and let's, and let's regroup when, when, you know, when all this emotion ain't speaking, you know? <laughs> and so that, yeah. that is, that has been helpful for us. Yeah. I think it's really helpful for people to process that sometimes a love story between two people and it don't look like the movies. <laughs> well, I say all the time, well, 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 you know this and people who, who know us both, like I do a great deal of sharing via social media, but I am quick to tell people who talk about how happy my wife and I look and how great our family is. I'm like, we're happy, but life ain't Facebook. Life mm-hmm. is not Facebook. Trust me. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that go into that kind of stuff that you guys never see. You guys never see. You guys will never, ever see. You will never know. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it fortifies us. And I don't try to perpetrate a fraud by any stretch of the imagination. But really, I try to share the high points, mainly mainly because my dad, who's in Detroit, you know, it gives him a glimpse into the life that we're living. But it's just to, to kind of create a, for lack of a better term, a, almost like a living time capsule so my daughter can go back and see the love that I've had for her and the exposure she's had over the years. I mean, my daughter has a, a email that she's had since she was six months old. And all the things you see me post and all the things you see me um, sharing, all the holidays, all of the heartfelt letters and things, I write them and I email them to her. So that way she can have them when she's old enough to read them, even if I'm not around. That is beautiful. <laughs> that is also a parenting hack. That's a, a heritage preservation hack, preserving our stories. Yeah. Do you know how many people don't have stories from their youth? You are over here spitting out facts from numbers and things. I'm like, everybody don't have a memory like that, Mark. That is a great idea. I've just taken that note. Yeah. And I think about the words that your mother spoke over you about your life and what was coming for you and the and the purpose behind you being here. And I love seeing that thread of you returning that to Maris. Like, like you took it and multiplied it. You took that seed and you're like, I got it. I see what happens in the power of speaking life over somebody. Oh yes. Yes. We have um Maris and I have a, a affirmation routine that um that I'm really proud of that we do every night. In addition to our prayers every night, we have sign language. So one of the things that I'll do is I'll say I'll do this. And she says, well, kind of forever. I'll do this. And she'll say, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. I do this. And she says, I'm Stacey Abrams. I'm Kamala Harris. I'm Venus and Serena. I'm Naomi Osaka. I'm Michelle Obama. And we do that every night, nonstop. Because I want the imagery of black women in her life to be very, very prominent. All right. Just go on ahead with your black fatherhood self. This is fantastic. What a blessing. You told me the why already, but how did you get to the place where you're like, this is what we're going to do tonight, every night? Well, it's. I wanted her to have imagery and I wanted her to have reference that was going to be consistent. And I knew that the consistency had to have a theme to it. So I wanted it to be amongst black women because I knew that what my mom meant to my life and then also 
I know that what both of my grandmothers, my paternal grandmother and my uh, maternal grandmother, as well as my mother, were all named May. Right. My, 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 my Lois May, Caldonia May was Lois's mom and Mary May was my dad's was my dad. So that's why my daughter's middle name is Maris Mays, because it's a compilation of the three Mays and the spirit of all her grandmothers. And so through that imagery and through that thoughtfulness, I wanted to make sure that she embodied the femininity, the black femininity and the richness in her heritage that called all those things to attention. Okay, the people on the recording can't can't see me right now, but I'm holding my whole heart at the plural maze. I did not know that. What an honor to give to, you know, your ancestors and for her to carry that on. That is, my mind has just been blown. And this honoring of Black femininity is... (laughs) I know it's out of love for my mom and my sisters overall. And then, I mean... Keisha, women like my wife, women like yourself, I see you, I hear you, I see you, I hear you, and I and I understand. I can never have the one-to-one understanding that you all have, but I get it. I get it. And if my daughter can grow with the awareness, the toughness, and the fortitude that someone like yourself has, someone like her mother has, I would not be any, I could not be any happier. Really. And so that's why it's important to point out those images. That's why it's important for her to understand what Auntie Keisha does. That's why it's important for her to understand how Auntie Keisha and Lauren bond. That's why it's important to understand how Nolana and her sister, Nolana and her mama bonds. That's why it's super important to me because I want her to understand the essence of black femininity, the essence of black womanhood, and the essence of honoring the folks that look like her. Well, I thank you. I thank you for listening to the black women in your life, past and present. Mayor Mark is on the job. Now I want to know, I want to see the receipts of how you love yourself. How do you show love to you? You know, I, I, I've only learned probably in the last, I would say, eight to 10 years on um, how to how to love on myself, if you will, because I've always put others so much before me that I wondered at some point, was there even a place for me to do that? Or could I do that without it being at the expense of others? But I have learned to do that now. The first way that I learned to do it is through mindfulness. Um, I have not been as diligent in the last probably six months as I have previously, but it's through just stopping, just stopping and being quiet and sitting down and listening. I have, um, several different mindfulness subscriptions. And then I also have, um, just some guiding, um, guided mindfulness techniques that I've learned from other people who have been, uh, who have been gracious enough to share, you know, some of the tools that they use in, in terms of recentering. So, during those times, I am, my mind is typically racing 100 miles a minute. But during those times, I have to stop. And then when I stop, it allows me to just listen, to listen to my inner thoughts, to listen to why I choose to say hi versus hello. To somebody, it may be the same thing. And they are synonymous, don't get me wrong. But the selection between the two is very important. And so when I'm able to tap into those things, it allows me to have a little bit more understanding about my calling, my purpose and my meaning in that particular space and time. 
And when I have that, that allows me to better understand how I can best go forward in fulfillment of the things that the universe has in store for me. And so that's that's the first way. So mindfulness. The second thing is, is through service. I absolutely love serving my community. I do. I love serving my community and not necessarily getting anything out of it. If I can just get an enriched an enriched perspective from someone else, that is that is just so important for me. And I know that's that's not probably as individual as the first thing, but the fact that I'm able to bring something that can make something easier for you or easier for my neighbor, easier for my daughter, easier for my daughter's class or easier for the incoming, you know, first year hires at my company. I feel like that is one of the major things I'm put on this earth to do. And so I'm answering a calling there. And then last, but certainly not least, being the naysayer in the crowd of yes men, mm. asking the next question. I mean, because it's always easy to just go with the flow, but it's so much more rewarding to just say, are we sure we thought this all the way through? Because there's always their perspective. And it doesn't mean that you have to go there, but you're raising the consideration bar for people to consider something other than what people see as obvious. Because the lesson doesn't typically come in the obvious answer. The lesson comes in the back and forth what gets us to the best answer. Because if there are 10, you know, scholars in a room or 10 worldly people in a room, there are probably 10 answers in the room. How do we emerge with the rightest answer? And I am so consumed with figuring out how to create a voice for, and I don't want to say the voiceless because that's cliche, but for the introvert, for the introvert. Mm -hmm. How do we get the introvert's concerns into a discussion amongst the type A personalities like myself. My wife is an introvert. I am a type A. And so often when we first started our ride on this love train, um, I would just talk, 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 And we're going to do this, that, and the other. And then I get turned, she say, I don't necessarily see it that way, but you hadn't asked me yet. You know? Yes, let him know, Delana. Right. He said, but you didn't ask me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, it helped me to kind of pump my brakes and, and, and consider and ask because just because I have it all figured out doesn't mean it works best for her. It doesn't. That's still, it still can be super frustrating, but the fortitude and the, the sage understanding of the perspective that is not my own is um mm-hmm. is has has been to my betterment and so I will continue to yeah. take pause and and incorporate those things. Yeah. She being who she is has taught you a greater compassion and empathy. Now I want to know. I want to see what would it mean for you to you better. Mm-hmm. For me to me better is to even be bolder in the face mm-hmm. of adversity. Like I smile in the face of adversity by being intellectually curious. But I mean, to be intellectually curious is one thing, but to say, all right, now we all know this some bull. <laughs> I am more of the type of who says, okay, so everybody here, nobody here saw anything, but the coin is missing, right? So let's start with John Doe. When you had your eyes checked last. And so, you know, I'm working my way, weaving, weaving back around. 
I want to be bolder in the face of adversity. And I am with with each iteration, Keisha, with each life lesson, I'm becoming more bolder because and I think, it again, it's part of the evolution process because you start thinking, F it. And so being able to show up and smile in the face of adversity and say, you know what, I don't agree with this and I don't agree with it and, and I'm not going to go along with it because I don't agree with it is something that I wish I could do a better job of. But oftentimes I go along with things and then I end up having to pick up the pieces of things that I did not firmly support in the first place. So I need to find that balance. So I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. I'm not there yet. I'm a work in progress. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Listen, you're one of the people who I learn from. You're one of my, you're one of the people who I confide in and you're one of the persons who I learn from. But thank you so much for sharing so many of the stories from your life. Like I said, this could be a a series because I have plenty of avenues that we could have gone down, but I feel like I've grown in my understanding of who you are as a person and who you've been and who you are today. And I'm excited about where you're taking the next chapter of Mark Hatcher. Thank you for that. Thank you for being who you are. And thank you for lending your experiences to my experience so I can create better experiences. All right. It is time for a quick break. Y'all let's talk about books. You know how at the end of every episode, I give you some resources and often those resources are great books that I think would really pair well with the things that we're learning and doing here on You Better. So for that reason, the podcast is affiliated with bookshop.org. Bookshop is an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. So whenever you head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash you better and purchase my recommendations, you are not only supporting your own self-love and self-discovery journey. You are also helping to keep local bookstores as an integral part of our culture and communities. And on top of that, you are also financially supporting the production of You Better. Again, that's bookshop.org slash shop slash you better. Head over there to get shopping. Okay, now let's get back to the show. What a treat it was to sit with someone who I feel like I know so well, but then realize how much of his life story I didn't know. It makes me want to sit down with every great friend I have and just dig into their life story and understand how they became the people that they are today. As I think about Mark's stories, I'm still struck every time by the power of how our early caretakers really impact us, whether that's our parents, older siblings, people in community. I'm just struck by how those early lessons really stick with us and shape us. And it makes me ask the question of who shaped you? What did they say to you? What did they teach you about other people? What did they teach you about yourself? Mark has carried lessons from his mother throughout his entire life, and it's impacting so much of how he moves today. It's really powerful. I also really enjoyed hearing about the mistake from Morehouse that resulted in him getting accepted into college early. And it makes me think about the fact that not everything that happens for you happens because of something you did. You can be ready to step into a serendipitous path that has found you, the universe has blessed you with. But I love the idea that 
things can happen out there in the world and they work in your favor. I'm also moved by the intentionality in which he is guiding a young mind and it makes me think about our responsibility to get this next generation of humans rooted in something positive, rooted in something healthy, something self-affirming in a way that's specific to who they are as beings, as opposed to lather, rinse, repeating whatever it was that we received. There's a thoughtfulness in thinking about what part of what you were taught should be applied to the children around you, but then what can you bring to them that's going to give them the specific wings that they need to fly for themselves. And that word about allowing ourselves to lean into the greatness we have already earned. So many of us are working so hard to make ourselves proud, to do great things in our communities, in our families, wherever the case may be. But sometimes you have to pause and just be in the life that you have built. Be in the beauty you have built. Pause and look around and accept that your hard work has done something. And our lives are not only about striving and struggle and labor and toil. Your life is also about the wonderful things that you may be overlooking because they're always there. Things about you. I thought that was beautiful. And I hope that anyone who is still out there living by the mantra, practice makes perfect, I hope today was your wake-up call to throw that out the window and give yourself the grace to strive for presence over perfection. Because your genuine presence, not your anxiously judging yourself because you're not getting everything perfect presence, but your genuine loving presence will make a difference. It will make a difference to you and the people you encounter. With that, I'll leave you with a few resources. Mark was so kind as to share with me a list of mindfulness and centering resources. So I will provide a list for you of those things in the show notes. There are beautiful meditation experiences. There's a 12-minute meditation, um, sleep cove guided meditations with lots of options and scenarios, and something that he said is great for beginners. It's Oprah and Deepak Chopra's 21-day meditation experience. So links for all of those are in the show notes. We also have some books that he loves for centering. We've talked about The Alchemist before. Also, I may have mentioned The Four Agreements, but if not, I will have that in the show notes as well. There is a novel called Before I Forget that's loosely based on a true story that helped Mark with understanding parenting and lineage. He also recommends Tuesdays with Maury great book based upon a true story highlighting the importance of connectivity with other humans and God's debris. It considers a subjective look at God's omnipotence. I am going to also add to this list. There is a book of quotations of Mayor Coleman Young since Mark mentioned Mayor Coleman Young during this interview. And since he also took so much pride in being a rabble rouser, I really want to encourage you to get your rabble rouse on too and get The Professional Troublemaker, which is an excellent book by Levy Ajayi-Jones, which helps us learn to tackle fear and be bold in the face of adversity and in the face of challenges, the way that Mark was saying he aspires to. So with that, I hope you learned something today that will help you to you better. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you found value in this episode, share it with a loved one. That's the main way we keep the show going and growing. And please leave a rating and a review for me. Let me know what's on your mind. All right. I'll see you next week.